0: This Forum is dedicated to the topic of consciousness and how our consciousness develops. We are delighted to have Georg
1: Nordhoff with us tonight. Georg is a professor at the University of Ottawa in Canada. He's a philosopher, he's a neuroscientist, and he's also a psychiatrist. He's also the author of several books on
0: this topic. So, uh, uh, Hollywood first.
1: Uh, I just wanted to say a few words, first, about... Uh, it Of course, it's a question that you shouldn't need to ask, but why uh, does Arkham Forum invite Georg Neuthoff to such an occasion? And uh, I think uh, he is, of course, we can say because he's famous, because he's a uh, great uh, philosopher and things like that, but there are very specific reasons also. And that is, uh, first of all his strong interest in the spontaneous activity of the brain the things that the fact that the brain is in itself active not just responding to things from the outside but is in itself active which coincides uh, very much with some of the ideas behind that book the power of the wandering mind uh, and also with our experience if you can transfer the brain thing to our experience while we meditate, that things go on spontaneously in our minds uh, all the time. And then second, he's not only interested in that but also in the interaction between what you can call stimulus-induced and task-oriented activity in the brain on the one hand and this spontaneous activity on the other hand which again reminds us very much of the interplay uh, that, is, that goes on in every meditation we have between the spontaneous activity of the mind, which is a sort of a basis there, and the more deliberate uh, volunt- volitional activity of the mind, which consists in basically repeating a meditation sound. Uh, So, those are two important reasons. In addition, his theory of consciousness, which I think we will hear more about, has as one of its basic tenets that consciousness arises, uh, partly at least because of uh, a kind of uh, alignment or synchrony between some of the things that take place in our brain, especially related to time and space, and things that happen in our body and in the environment. And that this kind of alignment or synchrony, one could think, is also a kind of basic thing for a more meditative mind, if you like, that you sort of vibrate in, uh, in um, the same kind of rhythm as nature out there, as art or music that you listen to or as uh, the kind of vibrations that lie at the bottom of also empathic uh, communication between people. So these three reasons are more than enough to stir an interest in the kind of neuro philosophy that uh, Georg Nordhoff uh, has produced several books about. Uh, so. With these words, I think we will invite him to talk ab- about himself, his own ideas, rather than me standing here.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for the introduction. So I have to also tell you how I got to know him because he translated what well, uh, wrote a preface to some of my books in the Chinese version which unfortunately I cannot read, unlike him. Um, and there we had a wonderful <laughs> session in February in Taiwan and there we got to know each other. And for me it's long on my list um, to do a meditation study and then he got me into this and now we are working on this and trying to link the meditation and the brain. And. So for me, it's the strong interest in the mind, in particular, uh, in the subjectivity of the mind. This is what occupies me, Um, and how is that possible? And I think meditation is a very special form of subjectivity. And I would like to learn from you about your form of meditation. Also, you will see I have specific questions to you. I will try to make some remarks where I could imagine connection. But please tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, because it's very important for me to get it right, what you experience. If you hear my German accent, I'm a German, I can't hide that. No, long, no matter how long I will live in Canada, they will recognize me. Um, and so the phenomenology, the subjective experience, is central for me because the way you experience things, like time and space, like your own self, like your own body, like the environment, should reflect the way how your brain is functioning. Yeah, and I will try to make some uh, ideas about it. And I start with a typical philosopher's question because philosophers like to ask what questions? And you see, some of you might know that uh, movie, very famous. You can download it, highly recommend it, it's very funny. Um, And also it's very serious because nowadays with artificial intelligence they try to do exactly these kind of things. What is discussed in the movie, and in uh, philosopher in Germany, Arthur Schopenhauer, nineteenth century, he already spoke of the brain as a gruesome grey pipe, uh, gruesome grey mass. I added the pipe uh, there. So the question is really. And that's something we know a lot about the brain, you hear a lot about in the media. Oh, they found this region when you are empathic, when you have now it's social migrants, people from London and doing that. However, we really don't know why and how neuronal activity transforms into something what you daily experience, your subjective experience. We just don't know. Yeah. Um, It's like physics at the end of the uh, 19th century. We didn't know certain things until Einstein came along. We just don't know why neuronal activity transforms into experience or mental activity. And that's always uh, when you don't know. There's a lot of facts and data, but we don't know the frame, the theoretical models. So and that's always good uh, then when you take a step back from the empirical data. And reflect upon your own presuppositions and your models. It's a daily life thing. when s- certain things go wrong and wrong. it's sometimes better just to get out, take a step back and look on the situation a little bit from the outside. Same so what I'm trying to do here, and I discuss sort of very briefly, how we imagine the brain to function, sort of a model of the brain, yeah? Usually, the usual presupposition and in current neuroscience, very prevalent is that the brain is like a car, Norwegian card, here's a Japanese car, or whatever. Yeah? Um, so in there is basically the car, supposedly it's not yet an automatic uh, vehicle. Uh, it's not from Elon Musk. Um, so it's a pure mechanical device, yeah so. Uh, the degree to which you push the gas pedal, uh, that's the degree of speed uh, you will have. So there's a direct proportional or linear relationship between your gas pedal push and your degree of speed. As you can see, I'm not a car driver, yeah. I just bike. Um, so that's the, m- the way we conceive the brain. And I give you a very concrete example of that here. So this basically, <coughs> Here you have a certain stimulus, you see the Colosseum of Rome and that with that stimulus you try to stimulate the brain And I'm sure before or after meditation you have certain stimuli and they affect you differently And that difference I will come back to, that's important So here and what is most important then on the right, this little bar there on the right upper right uh, these lines, uh, this is basically what we call task-evoked activity so basically you see me and your visual regions in the brain I hope there's some activity when you see me now yeah. however, yeah, so I come back to that you can say no, it's no problem <laughs> yeah? So, and that's what is important then the neuroscientists assume that this degree of activity is directly proportional to the degree of the stimulus so in more technical terms the stimulus is sufficient for the activity. So we can fully explain that activity there on the upper right by the stimulus. However, that leaves a gap by default. Because then you ask, "Yeah, however, why do I have a consciousness of that stimulus? Why do I experience? It's not only the stimulus, but I have an experience of that stimulus. And even more, or worse, it's also highly self-related. Yeah, let's say maybe your your mother is German and you say, Oh, this German or this is he looks like my mother and oh highly self-related. Yeah? So that suddenly things come into play which are not part of the stimulus itself. So that leaves by default a gap. So meaning there's a problem in that model. That model goes historically back to behaviorism and is basically revived in current cognitive neuroscience. And that's what you hear particularly from the Anglo-American world, when you see, okay, ah, this is now oh, a racist perception of migration, is that and that region in the brain. That's that kind of model. Yeah, and There's huge cultural differences also to the Eastern world, but I don't want to get into that. Yeah? So An alternative model which is sort of like this. So imagine you're stepping here out of the, the building and You're here, these little motorbikes, which are all here on the streets. Yeah? Unbelievable. I couldn't believe it when I came in last night here. (laughs) Yeah? I don't know what it's like in China, all the bikes. Yeah? You have all the bikes in China, it's a similar thing. But yeah? So imagine these stand still. If you don't put your card on it and you don't move and turn on the motor, they stand still. However, now imagine you step out there and these uh, go by themselves. They're constantly, they're spontaneously active. Yeah? Without you putting your card and turning the key, okay? So that's exactly what happens. This is your brain. Your brain is continuously active. It continuously has certain spatial temporal coordinates. So this term you hear a lot from me. Yeah, I want to hammer that point. It's basically the only point of my talk. Um, that uh, imagine so these motorbikes, these little bikes or rotors—I don't know how you call them. Um, they continuously move, and you say it's complete chaos, there's no system. However, there is a certain pattern in there, and this is about this pattern, yeah? And I'm sure when you have meditation, you have certain patterns of thought, yeah? And over the meditation, from the beginning to the end, but uh, you told me about this long meditation, six, seven hours, I'm sure the pattern of thought changes without you doing anything. Yeah, And I'm sure you have also certain patterns which repeat, particularly the closer they are in time. Yeah, So there's a certain similarity, even if the contents change. But the feeling might be the same, because this feeling you experience, that's about the patterns. That's what I try to convey, and that's one of the things I would love to find out in this study. So what you experience is not the content, you, uh, you experience a certain space-time patterns like these uh, motorbikes or rollers when they constantly move. So now how does that relate to the brain? Here you can see um, I put a little orange line in there. So now I approach you, now I come back here and I ask you, did you see me before? No. Because you were so much in your own thoughts, you didn't perceive me. Yeah, so your orange line was very strong. Yeah, so you perceive or, or maybe you perceived me as, oh God, I mean, he, looks my fa- my, my, he looks like my father, and my father was just a catastrophe. Yeah, so basically you projected what the psychoanalyst called projection, your father upon the me. So this is only possible that by your orange lines they're somewhat confounded or impacted by your previous life experiences. Yeah? And when you, as I understand the meditation you're doing, you operate on that orange line. Sorry for minimizing your meditation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, and basically my talk is just about this little orange line there. Yeah, Because I want to find out these are the patterns Certain space-time dynamic pattern, uh, which are central for transforming neuronal into mental activity. So these kind of pattern, which are there in the brain, I suppose that they also manifest in your mental features. I will explain that more in detail. So um, that's basically clear. You already said. Basically, now I can finish my talk, and that's it. Um, yeah. <coughs> so. Um, this is our world map from our group in, in, in Canada. And we have all kinds of people from all over the world. And it's, it's very interesting, the cultural differences which come. And the cultural differences also in mental experiences, also in how the world view is and how the view of the brain is. Yeah. So um, that's basically the overarching message of this topic, this Slide. This is a paper which we just published this year and I think it's so far, you know, when you, when you work in science and I work on theoretical and empirical uh, science, you, you constantly develop what you do, you, you try to get the next missing piece of the puzzle, so I have a certain framework now and then you try to, it's li- li- like a puzzle piece, Yeah, you, you have a framework, you already know somewhat how it could look like but you don't know the details yet, that's the stage you meet me. Uh, ten years ago I wouldn't have even that puzzle, I would have had no idea. Uh, at least now I think I have a f- puzzle. So now I try to put in the different pieces of the puzzle together, and these are two uh, important pieces. So first, the common currency, what is shared? For if something, it's, if A is transformed into B, uh, you need something that is shared, because otherwise you cannot transform. Imagine you trade a good, Let's say you trade some of your nice yogurt to Canada, which is desperately needed over there, and uh, so there need to be some kind of shared. Otherwise, you cannot trade that good. Meaning, there's a common currency. Uh, in this case, it's the U.S. dollar usually, yeah, which transforms the Norwegian kron into the uh, Canadian dollar, yeah, um, and so on. And it's the same thing. I'm raising the question: What is the common currency between neuronal? activity and experience activity or mental features. Yeah? So that's, I already said that that maybe certain space-time feature common currency. And I will try to show you empirical example in my talk. Yeah? And the second question that we really need to consider the brain in a spatial temporal way, rather than what we call in terms of specific cognitions or emotions. Because what your meditation is about is about experience. And that experience changes or modifies or impacts your cognition and your emotions, but it is primarily about a change in your experience, an experience that you experience that you are part of the world with that, and you experience yourself in a perspectival way to the world. I know this is very abstract. I, tro- I hope I can lend some uh, flesh to the bone. So this is basically here's the question: What is the common currency? So imagine we wouldn't we wouldn't know uh, uh, the U.S. dollar, and this is uh, time and space. So this is already clear, and this is a nice, very nice quote. So <coughs> what I'm trying to go back here is to a very basic level, a basic level of the brain, and ultimately, if you p- consider it more in a philosophical way, also to a basic level of nature. Yeah, because the brain—now I speak as a philosopher—is part of nature. So it should operate according to the same principles. And I do not, I'm not like Descartes who assumes a specific uh, mind separate from everything else. But it doesn't mean that I do not take experience seriously. The opposite. So it's a nice quote. If you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. And you will see particular the frequency plays a major role in my view of the brain. So I will tell you a little bit more about that in the um, course of the talk. So, that's the thing. First I want to show you some examples about the sense of self. Uh, Self is obviously, and you know this much better than I do, a central feature of meditation. And there has been long the self has long been discussed in philosophy interestingly East and West philosophy have different views of the self Um, and now in recent 20 uh, recent years this has also been studied in neuroscience and as a psychiatrist you can see some amazing changes in your sense of self so I encountered various kinds of celebrities Jesus, Buddha, Nofretete, Mao in my life as a psychiatrist meaning Particular schizophrenic patients, experience themselves as Jesus or Mao. And they dress accordingly. So I remember when I was a young resident back in Germany, one of the first patients I saw, um, uh, so he was lying in bed with a white robe and a beard. So indeed, he looked like Jesus. And I tried to talk to him, and I tried to very polite, and I could see he was very tense. Nothing happened. I like would like to interview you, and blah 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 blah, blah blah. Nothing happens. And finally he rose and knocked me down. How can you dare to speak to me? I'm Jesus. Yeah So <coughs> that was my, that encounter, yeah. So interestingly, this is also cultural variable. So in China, I met a couple of Maos. Yeah. So there I would not meet Jesus, yeah. And so on. So, this is a very interesting thing. So, but what does this tell us? That means that the self is malleable and there must be some kind of construction process. Yeah? So, and that's really, it's not written in stone, as we say. And you know this from the meditation. The meditation can se- change your sense of self. Yeah? So, what we found then, uh, it was in 2006. We looked for all kinds of regions in the brain which are activated when you, for instance, see your own face versus another face, or you hear your own name versus another f- uh, name, or autobiographical events like, OK, you attended this talk tonight with a strange Canadian guy, uh, and then versus another event where you weren't present from your friend. Yeah? Uh, maybe the party you missed tonight. Yeah? And when you compare those two events, Self versus non-self related, as we say, uh, then you get a lot of activation in the middle of the brain, and you might have heard that already uh, from the experts here. Uh, the default mode network is right in the middle of the brain, and as often the middle is central. Yeah, why and why that middle is so central in the brain/slash the default mode we don't really know, but it is clear that it's often associated with internal directed states. So when you're very withdrawn you dwell in your own thoughts, you let the thoughts flow then you see and you actually showed this you see a lot of default mode network activity in these midline regions. When you are a lot dwelling in your own past memories uh, and as a childhood how nice it was and blah 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 that's when you have a lot of activity in these regions. And that l- and interestingly, these regions uh, also show a very high level of spontaneous activity. Why and how that spontaneous activity is different from the other regions is yet unclear, but it's clear that they're somewhat special. So that sort of let us then investigate the idea maybe there's a strong overlap between activity related to your own self and your spontaneous activity. That sounds banal to you, and indeed we found it. You see the red is the overlap between self and resting state here as default mode network DMN. That sounds banal to you because you all know it from the meditation. For a neuroscientist, this is very strange because this would mean that yourself, slash your subjectivity is basically already encoded in your brain's spontaneous activity. Meaning, your spontaneous activity is intrinsically subjective. So this is more a philosophical statement, which huge implication for the way you conceive the brain. So when I had these findings, I switched my model from the first, remember, the the the, the, the like a car model to non-car. Okay. Yeah. So that was really that, and that tells you now. Now, of course, the question is, yeah, this spontaneous activity is so important for myself. It's myself, my sense of self sense of self, is already somewhat encoded, somewhat in there what is going on, then what is the feature that contains your sense of self? So that led us then to space-time dynamics. So now all the space-time, so, so maybe maybe there's a, a certain spatial structure, the temple structure. Here, these uh, little rollers, they go all kinds of crazy, all kinds of spatial temple trajectories. And, uh, but maybe there's a certain system to it, meaning a certain pattern. It's not, it looks chaotic from the outside, but when you investigate from the inside, maybe there's a certain structure to it, yeah? Maybe we just don't understand it from the outside. And this is what I show you here, particularly with respect to time, of on which I want to focus in the following. So here, you see upper left, of course, is the brain, it's clear. And then you see the, the, the black stuff, That's basically the raw cichlid. So, this is basically what you get when you do an EEG or fMRI. This is basically the raw cichlid. This is what you get. So, you look at this, okay, there's nothing in there, say goodbye. Okay, these neuroscientists are crazy. Yeah? And you say, we don't need that. Okay. However, when you analyze that, when you decompose it, there are various methods to decompose it, and usually, it's the engineers and the physics, physicists who know some of that. They're very clever in that. So that's why my group now in Ottawa has a lot of engineers and physicists. And one of the things what you see, you have continuous fluctuations and of your neuronal activity. It's never static. It's never the same. It's continuous change. That's very important. You know this from the meditation. You have continuous flow. You have continuous change in the Thought contents in your feelings, in your experience. How you experience yourself, how you experience your environment. And these, uh, and I suppose, and that's what you have to tell me later, uh, that these fluctuations occur maybe also in different speeds, some slower, some faster. And that's what you can, for instance, see in the brain. We have different what we call frequency ranges. This is very slow. Up there, it's faster. Frequency determined in hertz for the expert and also with different methods. We can measure that with different methods. Here with FMI, you know the f- uh, beautiful colorful brain scans or EEG, you measure the electrical activity. Yeah. So, and you see much of this now, uh, this is now what we try to link mental features. This is now the kind of data I show you that I, show, I will show, look, these kind of temple features which describe a certain temple pattern or structure in your spontaneous activity may be central for your mental features. So this is one of the questions why, and you will see this later. I'm very interested in hearing what you experience in terms when we raise this issue in terms of time and space during your meditation, because these are the basic ingredients your brain can work with. Yeah, And then it's more for the experts among you. So out of this chaotic time series, you can extract different kind of measures. For instance, how the different frequencies are related to each other, uh, whether you have more power in the slower ones or more power in the faster ones. Imagine a sea going to the seaside. You have a lot of sea here. And you have smaller waves and larger waves. The smaller waves are often and not very powerful. Yeah? So you're, you're not afraid of the smaller waves. But the larger waves are very powerful. They are of long duration and they're extremely powerful. And you might be afraid of them because they might smash you towards the next rock. Or as a surfer, you love those, obviously. Yeah? When you go to Hawaii, you have these huge, big, far, powerful, long waves. That's basically the very slow frequencies. And your brain, usually, as I said, if you have slower frequencies, you have more power. If you have more faster frequency relative, you're more here. And that relationship between slower and faster frequencies, you can measure. You can measure that, which is called scale-free activity or power law exponent. Uh, If somebody of you is an uh, engineer, she or he knows all that. And you can measure different kinds of me- uh, measures or indices of the structure, of the pattern, of the temple pattern of your neuronal activity. Here it's autocorrelation window, parlor. Just You don't need to understand. Just get different uh, measures of temple patterns. And that's what we did. That's what we did, for instance, in FMRI, in very slow frequency range, and in the same subjects, we also investigated their sense of self, self self-consciousness. There's a certain psychological scale which which you can do that, self-consciousness scale. And so we investigated the relationship between slower and faster frequency power with respect to self-consciousness. And I tell you two things. So here you see the frequency. This is faster. This is slower. So these are the faster waves. uh, on the seaside these are the slower waves, slower powerful waves and here's the power and you can see the slower have much more power than the faster and also what you see, each line is one subject there are huge inter-individual differences and that's a notion very important because you all know this even on different days you have different susceptibility to the meditation and then you also differ between people. Your partner, even, even if you lived 30, 40 years together, you're still very different how you react to the meditation on the same day. Meaning, there are huge intra-subject and intersubject differences. And that's what you can see here. Uh, also here, you have differences in your relationship between the power and the slower, slower and faster frequency. These are two different brain regions, again here in the middle of the brain of the default mode. And then, so this is important because this inter-individual differences on the neuronal level might then also reflect inter-individual differences on the psychological or experiential level. And that's exactly what we show here. Here the self-consciousness has three different, the scale has three different scores, private, public and social, about your private self, more inner thoughts. And what we could see, the more power you had in the slower frequencies relative to the faster ones, The higher your degree of private self consciousness. So, we were very excited about that because it really tells you that your spontaneous activity, its temple structure, the relationship between faster, slower frequency, has something to do with your sense of self. And there's no task, it's just pure your resting state, spontaneous activity. So, that means there's an intrinsic, uh, that intrinsically uh, your sense of self is already in there. Yeah? And then we did the same in a faster frequency range by measuring EEG. So we did exactly the same, same scale with different subjects now. And we could see exactly the same. Uh, uh, you could see here again the frequency. Now it was between 1 Hertz and 40 Hertz before it was a much slower frequency range because it was fMRI. Here you see again the power and you see again the same Uh, If you have slower frequency, more power, uh, faster frequency, less power. This is a specific alpha peak which nobody knows but everybody sees. Um, Yeah, uh, Experts among you, I can say more to that in the discussion because it is highly relevant. Um, And interestingly again, here you see the self-consciousness private, you see again correlates here with the relationship between faster and slower frequency, meaning The more power in your slow frequency relative to the faster frequencies, the stronger your sense of self. So now you can imagine based on these findings, I would probably assume that at least in part that during the meditation your balance between faster and slower frequencies is shifted relative maybe to the slower one. yeah, And maybe that and that's what my hope is that maybe we can use some of that that maybe if you let's say get an initial EEG before the meditation it tells you what how susceptible you are to meditation or what you might need to do so what does this tell us so here we had different kinds of measures of temple structure uh, I don't want to go into that cross-frequency coupling autocorrelation, and here's this, what I showed you, the power spectra-geschichte uh, story. Um, and that impacts yourself. So how you approach, how you make your decision, how your attention, how you perceive reward is strongly dependent upon your sense of self. And we have shown that and others, in many studies, the upper part, that your self impacts your decision making. Let's say, you make the, because uh, you're very much dwelling in your own thoughts, and, or you had a bad day, and uh, then maybe the decision about this talk say, OK, this what's not, not interesting for me, and it uh, didn't touch me at all. And that impacts how you uh, attend the talk, how you memorize the talk. Yeah? But that ultimately depends upon on your spatial temple structure. I'll show you more of that. So, what is the idea here? You can really see, so here on the left is the neuronal level. Here on the right, what we try to indicate is the mental level. And yourself, you integrate different timescales. Your actual decision-making in this moment, the way you perceive me, is strongly impacted by your sense of self and all kinds of your inner thoughts. However, that in turn is also determined by the long-term impact of your childhood and so on and so on. And we had studies showing that. And so the, the self ultimately serves for temple integration, yeah? integrating fast and slow timescales. If you are in your own thoughts and you dwell and you're very slow in your inner mode and then something fast happens, you cannot react. And I will show you later extreme examples of that same temple continuity yourself is always the same every morning I look into the mirror I see one more wrinkle but I'm still the same yeah I still experience myself as the same at least I hope so yeah and then of course different timescales nest in each other so here I bring you a painting from Leonardo da Vinci and you will say now he gets completely crazy. Off topic. No. Because when you look at the paintings by Leonardo da Vinci, they look alive. This I don't need to tell you is the Last Supper for Milano. And you see, he created on a 2D canvas a 3D structure. Yeah? It, it it doesn't come right when you see the original, it's amazing because you really have to see, you see the depth of the room. And within that space, he calculates all these gestures and you have the feeling in the next moment, things happen and change. So there's always a strong dynamics on those paintings. Yeah? So he creates a virtual space-time dynamics in the paintings. And this is and you see that. When you look at the, even in the Mona Lisa, you see the background of this. You have the uh, feeling that the river basically flows onto you. Yeah? you're You're part of the painting, why? because it creates a virtual three d reality yeah you don't need the modern tools of three d in, in in da Vinci because he already creates it, and this is unbelievable how he does it yeah and you can see this the uh, dynamics it looks as as life, and this is the unbelievable and that's what your brain does. It creates a virtual three d model yeah, so it creates basically a virtual three d model where the world is part of it. So you experience yourself in your consciousness as part of the wider world. In the same way you experience when you really get into this painting as part of this painting. Yeah? And that's phenomenal. That's what I- so your consciousness is not here in the head. Your consciousness is between your head and the rest of the world. Yeah? And I'm sure you know this very well from meditation. You probably know this much better than many neuroscientists. So, (coughs) And I come back to that. Now I show you some examples from consciousness studies. So here, uh, it's a summary of many studies in the field from other groups in our own group. And here, you could measure the degree of order or disorder, entropy, you might have heard that, or complexity of the neuronal activity. If you have very low complexity and entropy, and always the same, your neuronal activity, the pattern, then you're in the danger of losing consciousness. If you have too much, it's chaotic, there's no order, high entropy, it might flip. It's like in drug induced psychosis, it's a very volatile state. It can go in both directions experientially, in a very good direction, where you experience your part of the wider universe connectedness or alignment, as I like to say. Or it can also go into the horror trip. Yeah. So because here your brain is highly unstable. Yeah? So you see again, due to some spatial temporal pattern feature here, entropy complexity, you see a change in your mental state, your level of consciousness. And that leads us to this one. You can see if you have high entropy, you have a lot of contents. Your thoughts might become more disorganized. Yeah? but So uh, you have many, many contents. And probably you have a fleeting of content. And probably they become faster. You might have periods like that when you have meditation. You know this better than I do, obviously, when you get into difficult phases. However, when you have absolutely no entropy in your brain, then you have a very few contents. The contents become more and more sparse and sparse and ultimately you lose them. That's when you become sedated or fall asleep. Yeah. So meaning the repertoire of your content, the, wide, the range of possible contents on the level of consciousness might be related to the range of order or disorder or entropy on the level of the brain. So here you see again the idea of the common currency here in the Spatial Temple repertoire. So now you say, yes, this is all nice and good. Uh, why is it relevant? It is very relevant because I'm sure you know this. When you go undergo the meditation, it's much easier for you maybe afterwards to confront certain situations, to make your decisions, your perception. In daily life. So we tested that with various studies, and I don't want to go into depth. That your spontaneous activity or the activity prior to the arrival of the stimulus strongly impacts how you perceive the stimulus. Yeah? That's what I said you when you think a lot about your mother and you perceive me, you say, okay, Oh, is he there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> and <coughs> same here. So meaning to these kinds of experiences. And I would like to hear more about that from you. There may be underlying neuronal mechanisms. yeah. And here you see we did here decision making, moral decision making, <coughs> and uh, again decision making. <coughs> uh, here's the self and all kinds of stuff. I think I don't want to go into the detail. So what would you like? So I hope that I can convince you that from the side of a neuroscientist what you want to see, and that I think is one of the big, big problems in the current neuroscience of meditation, they operate up there on the cognitive level, the very upper level. They try to look for certain contents. and That's why I like your undirected form of meditation very much because it just emphasizes the spontaneous nature of your mind and basically it it gives you an impact An insight into your mental features themselves, independent of your voluntary or unconscious cognition on them. Yeah? And so, and I think that's for you the virtue of the meditation. For me, as a scientist, it gives me an, an unbiased insight into here the brain dynamics. That's what I hope. Yeah? Not the brain function. Yeah, because your brain function is improved by the meditation, yes, your decision-making perception. However, that is a deeper layer of that. And I would argue that any consistent long-term change in the brain function needs to have an underlying change in the brain dynamics. And I say that for the healthy mind as well as, as a psychiatrist because this is where I need to act in my patients. Now, Last example, and then I finish, I give you a couple of examples from, uh, I think I can skip this, from uh, um, from psychiatry and psychiatry offers the wonderful opportunity to get into some extreme experiences and, uh, and learn something from that, how the healthy brain or healthy mind must function. So here uh, we did, uh, and here I show you uh, different disorders here, we did something in bipolar patients, which is called the, includes the extremes of depression and mania. And I probably uh, leave that out. Uh, but what is more interesting here, here we did something where uh, we asked them for their time and space perception and we investigated time speed on both neuronal and experiential level. So the idea was If you have too slow of a time speed in your experience, you might have also too slow of a time speed in your brain activity. When you're depressed, that's exactly what happens. You have the feeling that time doesn't flow anymore. It stands still, nothing happens, and of course, it's only logical that you then get depressed. So that's exactly, and in mania, it's the opposite. Your inner time is way too fast. So here, I give you the typical example. So your inner time speed is way too slow in depression. So relative to outer time, you're way too slow. And that's exactly what patients tell you. I remember a little Chinese girl who came with her mother to admission. And afterwards, and she didn't speak at all. Um, uh, She didn't speak at all. (coughs) And um, afterwards, I asked her, why didn't you speak? And she said, yes, I knew that my mother would speak, uh, spoke normal speed, but for me, it was too fast. I couldn't follow, and then I sh- didn't speak at all. Yeah? Because she herself was too slow. Yeah? She couldn't follow. And in mania, it's the opposite. For the manic patients, we are too slow. And of course, what happens when you have the feeling that the other person is too slow, you get impatient. And then you get angry. And that's exactly what you see in these manic patients. Yeah? Yeah? So it's our fault. Um, then we investigated neuronal speed in the brain uh, how they perceive their own inner time speed that you can link this with a particular uh, network in the brain somatomotor network and the how they perceive the outer time speed because that's also subjective even if something outside there in the world is fast you might still perceive it as slow so that's why we looked here the visual uh, network here on the right. And I don't want to go into detail about this, but what we could really see is that on the neuronal level, we had too much neuronal time speed uh, in the inner, uh, uh, in the uh, outer net. We had too slow time speed in the network. Here's the visual network mediating outer time. So they perceive the outer time as too slow. And in Mania, the opposite. So, and usually we have some kind of balance between inner and outer time, and I would say that probably this balance is reset to a different level in meditation. Yeah, that I'm strongly convinced about. This, but in order to make that idea, I would need more subjective experiential reports, inner time speed, and how things also last duration. Yeah. You see this in my next example, in autism. When you see autistic patients, uh, you know the cardinal symptoms is of course that they're completely socially withdrawn. And and what we observed in these patients that they had too much power in their very slow frequencies. So maybe they are so social because if you have to interact with another person, you have to be fast. Yeah. So if there's too much slow activity in your brain, you have difficulties interacting. However, at the same time, because you have so much power, you might attribute too much power to the single stimuli. So your perception might be hypersensitive. That's exactly what you see in these patients. Yeah? Um, so that's another. And then here, I give you yet another example again from, from bipolar patients where we also thought we looked for, for the global activity in the brain and how that global activity is represented in single regions so meaning you are in a certain state but that state is dominated by your memory recollection so you think a lot you come during your meditation into a, a state where you suddenly start thinking a lot about your mother spontaneously uh, I know you, you probably diagnosed me already because I always bring the mother here, Uh, could also (laughs) bring the father. (laughs) Um, um, So, uh, why? Because maybe your global brain activity shifts, has a strong contribution to those centers in the brain where you recollect autobiographical memory, meaning hippocampus, medial temple. That's what we could show. That's particularly in depression. And that's exactly what you see in depression. They con- continuously think about their past and their autobiographical thing, and and always, and, and everything was wrong, and, and blah 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 blah. In mania, these people run aloud. When you see a manic patient, first she or he is very happy, so and everybody is contagious, everybody smiles, and then these people run around like crazy. Yeah, why? May because that's what these findings show. That there's too much global. The activity too much focused on the uh, sensory motor cortex, so you walk too much, that's exactly what you see. And I assume that during your meditation, that fluctuates. You probably uh, have a change in focus, the kind of content, the kind of emotions, the kind of uh, cognitive contents you have that they change over the course of meditation. So I expect that these. What we do here is sort of the global to local activity balance changes. And that is not needed. Yeah, so I come to the end of my talk. Um, so what is the main message? So I explic- explicate it here for psychiatry, but it could also be for any kind of mental feature. So there's a certain spontaneous activity. It's a chaotic pattern, and we don't really know what it is. We try to analyze there's a certain pattern structure in it. Uh, Slower frequencies have more power than faster. uh, Events which are more closely together, time-wise, impact each other more than events which are distant. So there's a certain pattern. There's a network. Regions which are closer to each other hang together. Yeah, f- uh, f- uh, birds of the birds of the same feather uh, fly together, uh, and time has already mentioned that. And that, in turn, those time-space constellations shape your mental features. And when I speak of time and space, I really mean there's a continuous change. If your brain stops changing, it's dead. Yeah. That's when you lose completely consciousness, you start in coma. So change is good. However, the change needs to have a certain structure, yeah? a certain pattern. And that's probably what you train with your meditation, I would assume. So what I somehow left out, because it's completely new territory, it's this lower part. So I focus a lot on that. And then the other part, let me put that in here. That was the wrong one. So I say, and on your experience. However, you might want to raise the question, where on earth is this structure coming from? And this is where it's coming from here. And this is very novel territory. And we discussed this a little bit, how much you align to your environment. So you already know this example. I always bring this because I have no better one. Uh, when you dance, when you hear music, let's say very rhythmic, or let's say, um, I know Ava is not the right country here, but uh, when you dance to that music, you c- completely unconsciously you tap your uh, foot in the rhythm of the music, whatever, or you do something like that, yeah? And you're not aware of it. And in the moment you become aware of it, you lose the feeling, yeah? So in the moment, ah, I do this, you lose the feeling, goodbye, <laughs> yeah? So that's where you're completely aligned. And I'm sure that this step here, and your brain has active mechanisms to align this. So it's not only from here to here, it's also from here to here. It's bilateral. So in my recent book, I call this world brain relationship. So I assume that for the effects of meditation, this one is absolutely central. Yeah? Because you detach yourself a little bit more from your. Uh, yeah, let, let, let's say. So here, you're much better aligned to yourself, to the spontaneous activity of your brain, which I assume reflects this one, the spatial temple structure, and that in turn reflects this one. Yeah? And I would argue that the, the good effects of the meditation ultimately come from here, from this, that you modulate this relationship. And I remember that you also told me that in different environmental contexts, it, it doesn't matter... W- What kind of context, but you align, uh, the context matters, and that's also very important for the effects of the meditation. So, and your brain is a very completely wants to adapt to the environment, it wants to keep in good relationship. Uh, In Chinese, you have the saying, harmony with nature. I think that's really true for the brain. That's why I believe that the brain functions, one of the reasons why I believe the brain functions in the Eastern mode not in the Western mode, because in the Western mode, you have a strict dichotomy between world and brain. The world is always secondary. Yeah? You impose yourself upon the world, brain world. No, the first before that is possible, you need to align yourself to the world. Yeah? Otherwise, you will not have mental health. I strongly believe that. Yeah? So I didn't show much data on that, because we're really in the early stages. So I give you just an example of what we want to do. And we're starting that actually uh, Um, Now that we really want to present movies, music, we want to analyze the space-time structure of the movies and the music with exactly the same measures we want to analyze the neuronal activity with. And the better they match, meaning the better, the more the language is the same, meaning the more they exhibit the same spontaneous pattern, the more they like each other. Like in real human life, after all. If you speak the same language, it's much easier to get in contact and to like each other. Yeah? If not, then so, yeah, still there's nonverbal communication, which you learn when you don't fix the language. Yeah, um, that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much. <coughs>